Hey, this is John Willis again, and uh, I got a, a really awesome guest this morning for the Profound Podcast. Uh, Dennis, you want to introduce yourself? Sure. I'm Dennis Surgent. I'm the president and principal consultant of Surgent Results Group, and uh, the group is myself and some contractors that I know very well. And I've been working in uh, independently as a consultant for management for several years now. Prior to that, I worked in the telecom industry, and I have a long history there, as well as now as a management consultant. Yeah, no, um, and we sort of met on LinkedIn, which was kind of fun. You reached out to me, but um, so you're a Deming fan. We talked prior about, you know, sort of this... Um, Sure. So Deming gets sort of in your head, I guess, at some point. And so yeah. I always like to ask people, like, where, like, how, what was your sort of experience of becoming aware of Deming? Or in a lot of people's case, they they have this aha moment, or maybe many aha moments yeah. with Dr. Deming. Well, it is much like Deming described. For me, it was discontinuous. The first time I heard of him was in 1980. I happened to be watching that NBC special with Japan oh, can wow. why can't we? And when he spoke, it clicked to me that here's somebody who knows a lot of the truths that I've seen at the time I was working in the telecom industry and I was unknowingly a student of Walter Schuhart, somewhat like Dr. Deming had been. And so Fast forward from 1980 to somewhere in the early 90s, I had read Deming's uh, first book, or I should say his next to the last book. It was the first for me, Out of mm -hmm. the Crisis. And then um, mid-90s, I discovered that he had died and that there was another book, The New Economics. And that's when I was at that vulnerable stage where I had a lot to accomplish as our company was restructuring. There was a, a somebody or two in the company that were very tuned into what Deming had been saying as we were restructuring. Uh, we also had a lot of people who were from the prevailing system of management. So there was this battle going on all the time. Mm -hmm. And uh, so the fun part was that that really kick-started my learning about Deming and Deming's methods, as I had already had some exposure to Schuhart's work through the Bell system. So I've interviewed some other people who um, who worked at sort of Bell, and and they, they said that um, sort of Schuhart's work was just... I'm sorry, John, I didn't understand. No, I was saying there was... Um, I've interviewed some other people. Oh, what happened? Oh, no, okay. I'll clean that up. But... Um, I've interviewed some other people who worked at Bell Labs, and they said that um, it was really sort of like you said, I because you were familiar with Schuert's work, sort of indirectly or directly. Is I guess it was just part of the DNA of Bell, right? The his work. Yeah, um, though the engineers and people who worked more closely with Bell Laboratories had, you know, different influences from different scientists there. The uh, connection to Schuhart's work was through a brown book that we referred to as the Bible. Hmm. My supervisors all had this brown book on their desk, and every once in a while we'd get into a difficult problem, 
and they would consult with this Bible to figure out how to gather the data and how to display it properly. And so at a certain stage, um, I discovered that this book was dedicated to Dr. Schuhart. They credited him, this committee that wrote the Bible, as it was called, um, credited Schuhart's work for inspiring their various methods on how to manage different types of statistical problems in the Bell system. So it was kind of, I think you said DNA, it was kind of baked into the DNA for some managers. Not everybody used that book. Uh, some of them clearly didn't follow the directions in the book. And um, I had a small start to my career by just, I was so young, so new as a management person when I got promoted to management that I said, well, here's a book that says how to do it. Let's do it that way. Yeah. And uh, it worked. Repeatedly, I got to go do things using some of those lessons from Schuhart and others uh, that were focused on quality. Deming wasn't credited at any point in that um, book or in that chain. It wasn't until uh, well after I had gotten into management that I discovered Deming and his work resonated because the truth was, in my experience, what I could, what I could see as evidence. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, you know, like I mean, I'm, I'm sure uh, you know. I'm, I'm more of a sort of a, a study of Deming than an implementer of Deming. Uh, although I'm trying to change that a little bit, you know. Um, but it, you know, from the way I've sort of read the history, is that you know, but like shoot primarily focused and correct me you know tell me i'd like to hear your opinion he primarily focused on the manufacturing problem which was basically yes. the you know the sort of bell labs the telco problem and what deming did was basically able to translate that into sort of just everything yes yeah Th that's that's an accurate way i think to describe it um although schuhart's job um from the research books that I've read from, published by Bell Laboratories was focused on solving the problem of quality of the, the various instruments of telephony that were deployed around the country. They wanted everything to be uniform and of uniform quality so that they could avoid the, the expense of going out to repair things if they didn't have to, you know, for a defective part. Um, and it was all electromechanical, very highly manual at the stage that uh, Walter Schuhart was doing his research. But um, it was not just theoretical from my understanding of his work and his credited work in the engineering um, history, if you will, of Bell Laboratories. Yeah, that's brilliant. Well, one of the ways that, um, you know, I really appreciate that, you know, I I post some things on LinkedIn and I think I post something about, you know, Ron Moen because I've learned so much from him and I just wish that I could have met him. But um, and then you reached out to me and said, hey, by the way, John, I I, I knew him. And and yeah. I said, tell, tell the DevOps, you know, to the crowd that mostly listens to my podcast, 
about Ron Moen and why he was sort of so interesting. And I'd go farther to say fascinating to me, but hopefully to people who listen to this podcast in the future. Well, um, some really interesting things about Ron Moen. Um, first of all, he had a delivery that was, I would say, somewhat unemotional in terms of stating the facts, putting the ideas in front of people about how to solve one problem or another. He had a great sense of humor. In a way, his sense of humor was also a little bit dry, like Dr. Deming's, um, which I've been able to see through video because um, I never met Dr. Deming. But I met Ron, had lunch with him a couple of times as uh, I, I was uh, learning from him and sharing some of my uh, work with him. I wanted to make sure and get his perspective. But I also got an invitation to his uh, home, mm. and Ron was generous in sharing what he knew, as well as some artifacts that he was cleaning out of his office. And I happened to have one of Deming's business cards printed oh, wow. on bamboo, um, gifted to me from Ron. Oh, wow. Uh, also got a copy of Deming's funeral program that Dr. Deming himself put together. Oh, wow. <laughs> and um, so Dr. Deming. <laughs> yeah, it, including the music choices. Oh, of course, of course, of course. Yeah. And and Ron uh, advised me on uh, some occasions when we ran into each other at Deming conferences. Um, most notably, he advised me about something that he and his associates of process improvement had uh, put together called the model for improvement. And somehow in the manuscript that I shared with him of a book that I was uh, writing for sharing with some of my customers, I had used the phrase model of improvement. And so he gently reminded me that I was getting it wrong and that he thought it would be wonderful if I would correct that error. Um, just, But he just was brilliant. He worked with Dr. Deming for several years. He helped facilitate several of his four-day seminars around the world. And uh, he's just, a, to me, a real hero. And uh, I'm honored to be in a very brief video or two oh. with uh, with him. Uh, where the Deming Institute has put together these videos for their online learning program. And, you know, to me, it's like a super honor to be featured on the same video clip with Ron, you know, saying what he has to say and other Deming scholars like him. Sadly, yeah. he's gone. Yeah, no, I, that's uh, like I said, by the time I, there was, a, there was just these giants that by the time I started becoming aware of Deming, they were all, sort of gone. But, um, you know, I, that the thing you just said about, you know, changing model for improvement to model of improvement, that to me is so like, I spent so much time, you know, sort of learning so much and, you know, read every book that's been written about Deming, read, pay, I mean, just like my life has been, particularly during the pandemic, when I finished, I, I literally finished my book now, um, after five revisions. Um, but, 
One of the things that was interesting about Deming, and it sounds like uh, it, it was clear that Ron had the same trait. Like Deming was very precise about his words. Yes, a simple word to him had to be sort of like not even hard, but like he either used it in a way where people thought like, "Oh my God, that guy must be conceited to say that," but but it wasn't. Or he was very sort of, um, you know, would want to correct you pretty strongly about the use of that word and. Yes. And and so could you explain like what because I because I, I think one of the things that like how I learned about Ron Moeing was his sort of history of PDSA. But I think that example of him asking you to change for to of, could you sort of explain that to people of why that would be so important to him in the way he thought? Well, uh, Ron might have been naturally this way before he started interacting with Dr. Deming, uh-huh. but um he was a statistician and my experience with statisticians is they respect precision in the numbers they love mathematics because it's certain there's not a lot of uh misinterpretation if you understand the mathematics and i've attributed the precision of words that deming was very careful in his choosing of the word continual with respect to continual improvement. If you look through his books and you find a single place where he uses the word continuous, I would love to know where it is (laughs) because I've looked and I haven't found it. Um, Ron also was precise about doing the research as he wrote papers as part of API, Associates in Process Improvement. He was uh, also an author of other books or co-authored other books. And so I just attribute it to his wanting to be correct and not having to go back and correct himself, even though somewhere recently I I found a video clip of Dr. Deming admitting that he had made a mistake for the last time. He wouldn't make that mistake again. Ah, Um, But Ron also was a very person-centered guy. Uh, The first time I met him was at a Deming conference several years ago, and the conversation was around my car and my Cadillac STS for the very first time on a trip out to Iowa State where the Deming conference was held that year had failed me. It wouldn't start. Mm. And it was a Saturday and I described to Ron just casually that I was getting my car repaired. A great Cadillac story that involves Toyota. But the Ron Moen part of the story is I told him about the starter and the starters between the heads in in the V, not outside like most starters, but inside the V of the engine. And he said, yes, if you'll go look at page whatever in Uh (laughs) economics, there's a diagram there in Dr. Deming's book. That is the engine he was talking about. And he said, how many miles do you have on that car? The first that it failed you. I was over 300,000 at that point. 
And in order to go get my car unlocked so the Toyota dealer could repair my Cadillac, Ron loaned me his car. And so that was my first time meeting him. And, That's and yeah, no. there, there's a reference to it in the video clip of that conference. Oh, that's great. Now that's, um, you know, why, so the thing that stuck with me, it almost became an obsession of like thinking I understood it and then sort of like stumbling across something else a year later or two years later. And then, oh, now I really understand it. Was Ron Mullen said that, I think what I, I heard in an interview with him where he said that the first time he had heard Dr. Deming speak, it was at some statistical, um, you know, academia thing. And and he started explaining the concept of uh, analytical statistics versus enumerated yeah. statistics. And he said that all the classic statisticians were all sort of like mad or like upset. And I I, I spent like this sort of journey over the years trying to really understand i knew something ron understood that i didn't understand being a, him being a statistician and me not being that there was more every time i thought i understood it there was something deeper behind it and i, I think i've recently gotten to a point where i i do i can really explain um and i guess along with it i'd love to hear your thoughts on this but one of the things i that sort of finally clicked to me was and I'm, I'm going to sort of mangle this quote from one of Deming's papers, but it was something like Deming saying that it's not the job of the statistician to solve the problem. It's the job of the statistician to enable the sort of subject matter expert to find out or enable them to go find out where the problem is. Yeah, what the cause is. Yeah. And then I think that sort of glued together me everything about statistical process control the charts, the visualization, the common versus special cause. And I finally got to a place after many years that like to, to understand what I heard years ago with Ron saying the difference between analytical and enumerated statistics. Yeah. The, the data that's out there is noise. Um, and this is my understanding, by the way, from the telecom world, the data is everywhere we've got volumes of it the important thing my belief is to sort out the signals of something going on either something going on the way it should or something that's not going on the way it should and you need to pay attention to that you need to go find out what triggered that out of all that noise out of all that data it's wonderful to be able to sort it in a way that you can put to use right away. Whether it's a supervisor calling and saying, you know, well, there's something going on on this hour. What was going on at that hour to the people who work in the process? And that's where the real power is, is talking to the people who are doing the work. Yeah, no, I think that's, um, it's clear you know, I guess that brings me to the, um, you know, probably the profound part of our podcast. Now, um, you said that like it was sort of new economics, you know, as you sort of journey, you know, you had read. You, it's like awesome that you actually watched that. Uh, I don't know what I was doing in 1980 and I surely <laughs> wasn't watching the NBC documentary. Um, but um, but, um, you know, you read Out of the Crisis, you read New Economics. And, and New Economics, right, is where he sort of codifies profound knowledge, right? And, yeah. And, um, and you had told me a story 
like, and, and we sort of can break down the sort of profound knowledge, but most people who listen to this podcast sort of have done that before many times. But you had a great story about your first job, right? And uh, yeah. and how like your your manager couldn't understand whether you were doing a great job or a horrible job. Or you want to tell yeah. us? It's, it's pretty fast. It it works its way into the sort of the elements of profound knowledge, in my opinion. Well, um, yeah, I think what I related to you before, there were lots of very early lessons that I had that came from the Bell System perspective of quality. Um, and, and I've got to say this name for posterity. Joe German, first day on the job, taught me about the importance of quality if I wanted to attain some kind of productivity. And he made a clear distinction. And I owe it to his memory to say his name. Uh, some weeks and maybe months later, still on that summer job that lasted for quite a while, my supervisor came to me three times in a short period of time, like within a couple of weeks, and asked me about this particular order. And we had these very thin paper orders that had all the details, all the codes that said, run a wire from here to here to make this telephone number work at this location for a customer. It was very electromechanical in those days. And he brought out this trouble ticket, brought out this order, had me look at it. And sure enough, my initials were on the order. And I went to the place on the distribution frame and I looked and I saw, boy, this was not good work. I corrected it. You know, when he was watching, did everything properly to make it right and apologized profusely. And on the third occasion, as I was really shocked that this had happened again, mm -hmm. my boss said, hold on a second. He said, I want to check something. And he went off to his office. And after everybody else came back from lunch, was at the lunchtime is when these conversations were taking place. He and after I had my lunch, he called me into his office. And he said, I'd like to show you something. And I thought, oh, gosh, you know, I'm so new. I'm going to get fired. Mm -hmm. What he showed me was a control chart. I didn't know what it was called at the time. But what he showed me was a control chart. And he showed me what the volume of work was for me what my productivity was day by day by day. And he said, you see here, he said, this is your productivity on the days that these errors occurred. And he said, now, your work is pretty good. <laughs> but he said, it looks like you did 80% of the work on these days. And you might be good, but you're not that good. There were four other people working with you. And it's just not rational to think that you did 80% of the work and the four other people did 20% of the work. And he said, today when I came out, I noticed something. Your coworkers' tool pouches were hanging on the end of the distribution frame while they were out to lunch. And I looked and I noticed that your pen in your tool pouch 
is green. Nobody else's is green. So I went back and I recalculated counting just the ones that were green. And you were about 20% of the work volume if I just counted the green ink on the paper log. That's hilarious. He said, I don't know who's testing. I don't know who they're testing. Are they testing you or are they testing me? But my supervisor introduced me that day within, I don't know, weeks of my first start on the job. He showed me a control chart. And so he said, um, don't worry about it. He said, I think I will just let people know that I have discovered an interesting problem. And he said, we'll see what happens. So he said, keep doing what you're doing. And I did. I want to fast forward to about 2005 or 2006. I happened to be taking my wife by my old neighborhood, and I pointed out where one of my coworkers used to live a couple of blocks away. And as we rounded the corner, who's sitting on the front porch but my coworker? And so my wife and I pulled up, stopped, got out and talked to her on her porch, caught up after several years. And I just gently asked her if she remembered certain events where this occurred. And she got the biggest smile on her face. She said, yeah, she said, I wondered how long it would take Dale to figure that out. So that is that the story? Yeah, yeah, no. And I guess there was some sort of collated problem with initials or something like that where you're right. Like Absolutely. Some of my coworkers were using my initials, but they were doing it in blue and black ink. Yeah, that's brilliant. I mean, that's I mean, that's analytical statistics, right? It is yeah. like like you know, to be able to sort of you know, sort of unpeel or look for layers of you know, not just accept like a sort of a first order, like, okay, you know, Dennis is making the first one error as well. Let's take a look at it. Let's apply, let's apply analytical statistics. And yes. wait a minute, this is an anomaly, right? One person can't be doing this much work. Okay, something else needs to be discovered. And then like outside of the domain of stat analytical statistics, it's the green pen. But yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I, I love that story because it, it really sort of, um, you know, so going back to sort of new economics, right, you know, the profound knowledge, uh, you know, one of the things when I was writing my book, I knew it would be critical to try to explain where Deming came up with those elements and how he did, right? And, you know, and, and as I sort of went through all the things of like, where did he get theory of knowledge from? Where did he get, you know, theory of variation? Where did he get theory of psychology? Where did he get, um, you know, appreciation of systems? Um, I, I realized that in my mind, the the proper way to explain profound knowledge is, it should be ordered. It should be theory of knowledge, which is how do we know, how do we know what we think we know? Right. Which that, 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 that story is a classic story of like, we think we know that Dennis is creating the most amount of errors. Yeah. But how do we know that? And then the, the what I think theory of variation, which comes second in the order, is how do we understand what we know? And that yes. was using analytical statistics. 
you know, and, 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 you know, and, and I think that to me, that's a great story, you know, and then you, you know, I mean, maybe at that point, actually, um, you know, there was a theory of psychology, right. Which is the human nature of how to deal with you and realize, you know, like we could get into sort of intrinsic or biases or like to be able to uncouple the classic, you you said earlier, the the prevailing system of management, fortunately that, that manager wasn't sort of pinned into the prevailing system management, which might have fired you because <laughs> you had the most amount of errors that day, right? There was, there yeah. was, and then you know, again, you can also think that he was sort of a systems thinker too, and that you know he really had to step back and say, you know, let me think about all the components of this thing. It's not feasible, you know. Who knows if he ever got to the bottom of it or not? Right. Well. I think he must have because the manipulation of the numbers stopped. Okay, there you go. <laughs> yeah. That's even and, better, right? Yeah, and and this is the thing that you know gave me an appreciation for looking at other factors besides just the number. Yeah. yeah. Dennis had an error today. Dennis had another error another day. Dennis had a third error a third day. And so the common thing is not just Dennis, 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 or error, 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 but it's what's the system delivering over time. And it was that thinking about what's the system and what's the evidence of the system over a period of time. And and, uh, Dr. Deming and others that he learned from and that have learned from him have emphasized that no number in isolation has any meaning. It's over the period of time that statistics really have uh, you know, a, a huge impact on our understanding of what's going on in the system. Yeah. And I think also like the, the, the brilliance of, of him um, think, you know, coming up with those sort of four elements to analyze the complexity of a system. You had told me, um, and I, I've, and it's probably just that um, I'm not a good listener, but, you said that, you know, because one of the things that, that I struggled, it was easy, easier to understand where Deming got theory of knowledge, you know, mostly Shewitt, mostly um, you know, pragmatism, right? Sort of the philosophy part, which Shewitt basically asked him, told him, hey, you should read this book by C.I. Yeah. Lewis. Um, you know, variation, like, of course, right? Like all the bodies of work that Shewitt had, right? Which was, you know, probably was the core of the the Brown book, as you said. Um, and system thinking, I did a fair amount of research on what he did during World War II and who he had worked with. But psychology was always a tough one because, one, he was a humanist. Like, we knew that about him and who he was and how he thought about people. But you had suggested that he had familiarity. Like, he he interned at Hawthorne. That's a fact. And that, that there were, like, we knew there were a lot of interesting studies going on about work habits and, you know, I always said that Hawthorne was sort of the best, you know, sort of the Dickens. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was, it was <laughs> yeah. a place that like outside of the building, it was this incredible place for people and culture, you know, to sort of get loans, you know, like, and I've written about this in the book, but inside it was a sweatshop, you know, inside the factory. And so can you tell me again, the, the story that you, that your theory was that, you know, there were, there were, that Deming was probably directly related to some of those that work. That well, was- I'm not sure that Deming was doing any of the research. Right. No, I get that. Yeah. But, but 
if he truly went there and referred to it in his books about keeping away from the stairs at yeah, quitting yeah. time. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm th- my theory is that that could have informed his thinking about the psychology of people. He was there as uh, he was fulfilling his role as Schuhart was coaching him in his PhD. Um, I think he had to have observed some of these aspects of the Hawthorne experiments um, just uh, recently had a chance to discuss with one of Ron Mowen's colleagues at API, Cliff Norman, who wrote that, co-wrote that PDSA paper. Mm-hmm. And I was telling him about this and he, he, um, he suggested that I should read this book that takes a really critical look at the Hawthorne experiments and Elton Mayo in particular. And so as I have dug into the records from uh, Bell Laboratories of the Hawthorne experiments, as I've read uh, Fritz Rethlisberger's book on the Hawthorne experiments, I read this other one, and I'm not quite through with it yet, but they're picking apart all of the details that were being tested that informed Elton Mayo, and some people want to... Um, shall we say, argue with what Mayo believed. But the thing that is most remarkable to me is looking at all of those records and references is that the experiments were looking for these manipulative things that they could change. And what they kept finding out was the big variable was the people. Mm -hmm. The people were not as predictable as they wanted them to be as cogs in a machine. Right. This yeah. was not long after Frederick Taylor died and you know a wild variety of industrial engineers were marching down the path of uh, mechanistic organizations. Yeah. And what was being discovered at Hawthorne Works is people were not cogs in the machine. So I think maybe Deming picked up some of his understanding of psychology from whatever he observed there and elsewhere. Because he was an observer of life, even in hospitals in later life. Um, he he was an observer when he was in Japan. He tried to respect the people and the culture there, made many observations about the culture of the people he was working with. So it's just my theory. No, I, I, I love it. I think because there's, there's clearly a nexus you know, I, I had suggested I did an interview with Doris Quinn, and I, I think we, I told you about like most people don't know her, but she spent like the last year of Deming's life traveling with him. She was a nurse that Deming um, had met at one of his seminars, and she just that she really clicked on the way she thought about like nursing and hospital. And and I suggested to her that sort of that could it be that that Japan changed Deming as much as Deming changed Japan. And uh-huh. she, she said, huh, yeah, I think you're onto something. Not that I'm, but, but you're right. You know, like if you, if you read like sort of all the notes from his secretary about like he, he would, you know, he just love, he would buy food from the PX. He would literally love sake. He loved the, the, he'd sneak out to go to Kabuki theater. I mean, he just fell in love with that culture and to understand the nature of how they thought clearly reflected 
in his further work. But I think you're right. I think he had a lot of that instinct long before he went to Japan. And, it, you know, I, I can't imagine that with all that, the way he was such an inquisitive person and just sort of wanted to turn every stone over to find out. Like, I mean, if you look, I haven't been, but like the uh, Library of Congress, right? Like, has like supposedly there's a whole wall of letters that he's written to people in the most obscure. Like he'd read something about somebody and he'd write them a letter saying, hey, I'd love to know more about this or that. Yes. So to your point, I, I can't imagine if he was there, he wasn't asking questions or observing. And it it had to have an imprint on the way he saw it. Yeah. And he was a uh, note taker. Yeah. He He took notes of conversations he had with people and um, he sometimes was generous with his credits for ideas. Uh, somebody that is working on the statistics modules for the Deming Next program um, has been credited by Dr. Deming with this idea. And I heard someone ask this gentleman, uh, Mike Tvide, you know, did you really say that? He said, well, no, I didn't say it quite that way, but Dr. Deming cleaned it up for me. Ah, yeah, yeah. Um, and and one of the things that really got me fascinated in Dr. Deming is, as I was reading the new economics, he had a credit in there to a Hank Carabelli from Michigan Bell. The Michigan Bell caught my attention. And I knew a Hank Carabelli. I thought maybe this is Hank's dad. So I called Hank and he said, no, that's me. Oh, wow. <laughs> that's me. Um, and I met Dr. Deming and it changed my life. Wow. And yeah. Hank was yeah. clearly outside the prevailing system in uh, my experience at Ameritech. Yeah, no, the, um, you know, that whole idea of the prevailing, like, you know, the, like, and, you know, we, we, you know, like, you know, I'm deeply involved in what's called DevOps and, you know, how a lot of yes. the, stuff works and like we're still battling this you know i mean it's the same it, it's you know it's what he was trying to correct in the 30s what you know in the 50s he goes to japan and then we coin this as lean and like and you know we go from lean manufacturing to lean software development to you know agile to devops right and like we're just always constantly battling the sort of this prevailing system of management that that it just um it's just this calcium buildup that, like, was just—it it just seems to never go away, right? I and like the way you phrase that, calcium buildup. Yeah, yeah, because it just sort of builds, right? But so I guess I was going to ask you. So, like, out of all the things, you know, this is sort of sort of an unfair question, but you're a good bloke and you can get it. Um, out of all the things that you've learned from Deming, you know, you've got, and I want you to tell everybody about your practice and what you do and all that, but. What do you think is probably the most effective things that that you've been able to excuse me, use um, in your practice that you sort of find that like like yes, the fact that I, I took this and sort of from my learnings of Deming and it actually works when I go to customers. Is it is that easy enough to sort of codify or? Well, it's not because every customer is different. Every customer has a different understanding of their system and their system's place in the world. 
So um, I, I think the thing that helps me most in my work is understanding how they understand their system. Mm. And most of what they think they know about their system, they don't really know. It's a superstition or a myth. Yeah. And so helping them get over the cognitive dissonance when they start to learn that what they think they are doing by rewarding performance is actually damaging performance, it's a very, very subtle task. Um, I have a colleague who has since passed, Tommy Smith, said he was not a consultant, but an insultant. <laughs> and he was all over safety. But, you know, people have cognitive dissonance right. because they think they know what they really don't know. Yeah. And so I find the best way to help them is to help them recognize that they can get the evidence themselves if they learn a simple tool like the plan, do, study, act cycle, right. PDCA, whatever you want to call it. And if they learn to look at data over time, two fairly simple methods, it's not just the tool, it's the how do you use it and when do you use it. Um, and sometimes I'll use the metaphor because there are a lot of, my customers who are so focused on tools, it's everything I can do to get them off of acquiring some tool that's going to be the magic solution to whatever their people sure. problems are. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I just try to help them understand that, that they, that there is a better way and that they can be way more successful when they start to learn how to use the methods and just because you watch a doctor perform surgery with a scalpel and you have a scalpel in your hand having watched that surgery once doesn't mean you know what you're doing with a scalpel. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Now there's so much there. I mean, and again, it's um it just goes back to um this messaging that we, you know, we try to um you know, I mean, one of the things that, that I found, which was you know, early in the DevOps movement, you know, a lot of us were like, oh, this is amazing. And then, you know, so you learn that like a lot of it came from lean, you know, and, and there's, there's sort of good lean, bad lean. <laughs> we don't need to go into that. Like there's the sort of the, the, you know, like anything else, agile, there's good agile, bad agile, there's good lean, bad lean. But, but then you go back to lean and then of course, where did that come from? Like Toyota production systems. And then, you know, um, you know, and I, I'm very careful not to say that like Deming created the miracle in Japan. You know, one is Japan created the miracle in Japan. That's and there, right. were, there were many contributors, you know, Duran. Um, there was just like there were definitely a lot of contributors. Deming was incredibly influential in that contribution. But yeah. I think a lot of like Deming, the, the trap that you can run into is that that you get so into Deming and you're so in sync with the way he thinks, you start sort of repeating these sort of um, Pollyannic, you know, like, oh, one guy created this, like, the, like Toyota exists because of, you know, because of Deming. And that's just, you know, but, but you know, Deming would probably get very upset, you know, today 
if um, but I guess the 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 my rant is that they're all <laughs> the same problem, right? It's the same problem whether you go back to the twenties, the thirties, the fifties, the eighties, nineties, and now you know in twenty twenty three. It, it's it, it like you just said it like you know whether it's PDSA or not. I I think you're right. It's PDSA, but it's how do we know what we think we know? How do we understand what we know? Like you know, so how do we know is we got a question, and yes. how do we understand? We need to look at data. Well, it, and this is the thing that a lot of people misunderstand about not only Toyota and Lean, but about uh, Deming's role in Japan and their turnaround. They did the work. The people in Japan, in these Japanese companies, in the whole country, did the work. They got the results. Deming helped them see things differently, but they were on a search that began long before Deming got there. Before the war, they had their methods. They had learned a lot from Frederick Taylor, but after the destruction of the war, they were looking for solutions from somebody who they looked up to. They looked up to Deming. They looked up also to Duran at a certain stage. They were very respectful of uh, Homer Sarasone, wanted Walter Schuhart, couldn't get him, right? Yeah. So got Deming instead. But they had a long journey with lots of things that they had explored, and they just kept looking for how do we keep improving. They didn't, even though they said they wanted to go after perfection, they continue to improve to this day. And it's not just Toyota; it's a lot of Japanese. Yes, no, yes, that's right. That's right. There was. I mean, that's why they, it's been referred to as the miracle. Japan was not just Toyota. You know, there's an interesting. You know, this could be another podcast, but. Uh, the Saracen, Duran, and Deming, you know, they're just like, the, the again, another classification of humans is to sort of like compare and who's better. Like it's it's like, you know, sort of NFL football, right? Like who's better? And there's just this like terrible noise out there from people um, about, Sar- you know, it wasn't Deming, it was Saracen. It wasn't Deming, it was Duran. And the the point I've made to all of these, I, I try to stay away from the argument that, hey, it's everybody. But the one prevailing fact is that Duran and his followers tend to are a lot tend to downplay Demi's contribution. Saracen and his followers, in fact, downplay Demi. I mean, I have letters that he's written. Deming never downplayed anybody else's contribution. He never, you know, he always gave credit across the board. So like, that's my only one prevailing fact is this man gave credit to everybody. And there's, there's, you know, depending on where you get the quote from, there's things about Duran saying that Deming didn't really understand management. And then Saracen says that, you know, well, they didn't even want Deming. They wanted sure. Like, it's just all this nonsense. And like you said, Find me one place in Deming's work, you know, where he uses, um, you know, continuous or whatever. Right. And like, find me one place where Deming said something disparaging or downplayed anybody else's contribution. I dare you to find that. Yeah, I haven't found it yet either. And in fact, I've um, found references to those individuals who have criticized him. 
Okay, so, so, yeah, I mean, that just tells you a lot about contribution. So where do people find you? I know you're you're out there. I mean, clearly anybody who listens to this would, would could benefit from your experience. And like, hopefully, you know, people, you know, uh, that might listen to this think, hey, you know, somebody that really understands Deming and like all your experience in management and leadership. Um, what, what, how, I, and I'll put it in the show notes, too. But like, how, how would people find you? Well, they can find me at my uh, company website. It's surgentresults.com. And um, the Deming Institute is another place where they can find me. Um, I'm very pleased to help them with some of their programs. I've been honored to be selected to present some research papers to the Deming Institute research seminars. And um, so I, I would just say that's probably the best way to reach me is through the surgeonresults.com. And of course, my phone number, which you have, you're welcome to share that with anybody. Sure. Yeah, no, but people reach out to me in one direct or any sort of email introduction, I would be glad to do that. I, I, I thoroughly, I'm so glad that you reached out to me. Um, I've just enjoyed. This is our second conversation together. We got to record the second one. I'm I, like, I'm honored, and I really, um, I just, I love the way you think, and it's just been a blast having a conversation with you. So, um, well, uh, when you have time, I would like to share some thoughts with you that I discovered a long time ago about what I thought of as the equivalent of the DevOps world way back when. Okay. Yeah. I would, I would, let's 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 put it on the calendar let's uh, okay i'll I'll give you something yeah we like let's keep this as a continuous conversation because there's just a lot we can both learn from each other so yeah it's it's all about learning it it is about learning that is the number one if there's one principle between all this is constantly be learning so all right dennis it was was a blast thank you so much thank you very much i'm honored okay uh